Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buda. In today's episode, we'll be looking at Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather by Sarah Pinsker. This story is, I don't know, one of the most recent stories was ever covered. It was published in 2021. Yeah, I think not only is this the most recent story that we have covered, I think the gap between its publication and us covering it is the shortest gap that there has ever been. I should say, you know, we're recording this in 2023, though this, of course, will not actually be airing until 2024. But the collection that this is in is called Lost Places, and it is hot off the press. I mean, this was on a ballot. I should say this was nominated by a Patreon supporter. It was on the ballot before this collection was published. And so when this won the vote, we we actually pre-ordered this book. And uh, I don't know if that will ever happen again in the history of uh, anything on this network. Uh, So that was really excited. So uh, just for that alone, let me say a special thanks to the Patreon supporter who nominated this story, but also because, wow, this story is awesome. <laughs> you and I are like giddy about this story. It blew us away. I want to say a little bit about the um, publishers of this book. It's Small Beer Press, and they are run by uh, Kelly Link and her husband, I think. Um, not too long ago, they had a warehouse sale. I didn't realize this was a, a Small Beer Press book until I just looked at the pub- publisher info. And uh, they had a warehouse sale. I bought a bunch of Elizabeth Hand novels there. Um you should be constantly checking what Small Beer Press is up to. They are exactly the kind of publisher who, if you're listening to this show, you listen to other um, shows we put out on the network, they're who you should be checking a couple times a year and and buying book, books from, along with uh, Bad Hand Books, who, who are publishing Laird Baron right now. I guess all I'm saying here at the top of the show is support your small press because without them, we wouldn't have this story collection. Um, we Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather is, you know, you can get at other places, but keep buying real books. Uh, it's really important for the reality that we all share, I think. This story is incredible, Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather. It's incredible for a number of reasons, not just its structure, its conceit, but also it's a darn good tale. And uh, I don't want to say any more about it, Glenn, at the top here. Let's just get right to it. Right. Well, what you're hinting at here is that uh, this is not a conventional prose narrative. And instead, what happens here is that the the story unfolds as a discussion thread on some kind of internet forum. I mean, it seems a lot like Reddit, though Pinsker has taken some liberties with that. But you know, the point I'm getting at here is that uh, recapping each page in sequence would be well, well, tedious. It would be tedious, but also, more importantly, would fail to capture the spirit of the story. And so that is not what we are going to do. Instead, what we're going to do is break this down into two plot threads that Pinsker actually weaves together. And we're just going to have to let that stand as the recap. There is, of course, then the third element of the story, and that is the forum conversation itself, which has a cast of its own interesting characters. We will talk about that, but I think that is going to be better left as a segment in the discussion section of the episode. I mean, the alternative here, I guess, right, is that I recap to you the comments on the internet, which is, you know, that's not anything anybody actually wants. (laughs) Um, So yeah, a bit of a preamble here, Brandon. Is there any other prefatory material that we should offer to our listeners before we get into it? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll offer up some things in a moment that are more maybe stories or books of interest that that came to my mind when I was reading this. But first, I want to say, yeah, that this is a, a lyrics forum, and that matters maybe in a technological sense or in the way that technology is evoked in the story, um, because this this lyrics forum is a site that I think it's pretty low internet traffic, though the forum is moderated. And what's important here is that anyone can respond to a post at any time. So there's an element of the story here where the when of a post isn't in sequence with the order that it appears in a story. And this will make sense uh, as we unravel some of these plot threads. But it is a feature of the story that I want to highlight at the top uh, because it's so damn clever. And I and I don't think I've read a story that kind of makes use of technology in such a compelling way, but also is able to bring in the weirdness of the way we, you know, Internet 2.0 or 3 point oh actually works in our lives. And so um, I love that element. And I think uh, Pinsker really captured something with it, with the strangeness of time that we engage with on on forums. But, but in terms of uh, offering some other material to consider that might inform the style of the story we're getting, or maybe some interpretive suggestions, or maybe just some background reading material, uh, I'd say there's Nabokov's Pale Fire, which I have yet to finish reading. Uh, Glenn, I bought this in the middle of our coverage of Peace on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast and just simply have not had time to knock it out. But Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather passes the Pale Fire vibe check, at least as, as much as I can offer. Uh, and then there's the Nick Cage Wicker Man movie, uh, maybe Full Car more generally to consider as well. I'm sure there's a host of other great material to consider with this, reading this story, things that may come to your mind that I'm unfamiliar with. But those two are the things that came to mind to me. Uh, this story also stands on its own and it's uh, uh, in a marvelous way. And I think I need to really emphasize that. I don't know. Maybe you could also read the poetry of Robert Burns. That might be fun to look into. Okay. Well, let's let's get the particulars here. So let's talk about the topic of this forum discussion thread. It is an English folk song, an early modern English folk song called Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather. And uh, hey, that's the name of the story. Now, this is not a real song. Pinsker has made this up and we get all of the lyrics to this song, including alternate stanzas and verses and so on. And so that in itself is just a real triumph. On top of this, Pinsker has given the song a number for each of the two major catalogs of English folk songs. Again, these numbers are made up. There aren't actual entries in the catalogs under these numbers, but it feels authentic then. And that's a fantastic touch. And you and I actually have have talked about uh, one of these catalogs before. This is the child catalog. People will call these child ballads. You and I have talked about those before in terms of uh, uh, Shirley Jackson. They've also come up on uh, Hanging Out with the Dream King, our, our Neil Gaiman podcast as well. So what we're going to do here is just in this part of the recap, I'm simply going to narrate the plot of this ballad, the you know text of which we get entirely in the discussion thread. Now, the story of the ballad is set contemporary to its composition, and that means that it is set in early modern England, and it's also set in a rural setting. Most of the action takes place at a bridge near some woods, uh, the woods full of oak trees, and 
The story concerns two teenagers, maybe two 20-somethings, who are named William and Ellen, and it is a love story. But it is a love story of the star-crossed lovers variety, which is to say that it is not going to end well. And at the start of the song, there are a lot of warnings. Specifically, Ellen's older sisters warn her that, and here I'm quoting, there's no good that can follow a man met moonlit beneath the bridge where oaken hearts do gather. And that seems like pretty standard advice, right? Don't meet strangers alone at night. But as the story unfolds, it's really William who is in danger here, not Ellen. Ellen literally rips out William's heart, and I have to say, Pinsker herself has beaten me to the Temple of Doom joke here, which is uh, fantastic. (laughs) So at any rate, Ellen rips out William's heart and places it inside a really old oak tree so that the heart will quicken when spring comes. Then, in turn, she plants an acorn in William's chest cavity where, uh, you know, his heart used to be. But William is still alive while all this is going on, though he is no longer able to speak. And Ellen leaves him after this rendezvous, so William walks back to the village. But when the villagers realize what has happened to him, they hang him from the gallows pole. Ellen observes this, and she's distraught about this, though her agency in the story is now at an end. And at this point, the villagers grab some torches, and they go into the woods where oaken hearts do gather, and the song says that they are going there so that they can avenge William. But they don't find what they're looking for. They couldn't find the place where oaken hearts do gather. And then, in the springtime, an oak sapling pushes up from the grave where they have buried William, And so now the villagers return to the woods with torches, uh, though also with axes this time, and they cut down every oak sapling they find. And now this activity has become an annual springtime ritual for this village. And here's how the song ends. Still sometimes when the wind blows cold and strips red leaves from branches, for Ellen takes another love where oaken hearts do gather. So... You know, that's the text of the song all on its own. I think this is a pretty great uh, you know, dark fantasy story or, or folk horror story just all by itself, even though we're really just getting started talking about what Pinsker has done. It's magnificent. It really does stand alone. It's a pitch perfect uh, English ballad, folk ballad all by itself. You could be entirely convinced that it's real and that it's caught fire and it's become like a rite of passage for a certain style of band to cover uh, in their catalog or at a concert or something like that. I mean, the story even includes links uh, that you can click on of, dif- of different bands, versions of the songs. And uh, I could make a series of dad jokes here about how I tried to Click the links in the book, but nothing happened. <laughs> I, I'm going to refrain from that because I, I didn't have time to craft a bit when I was supposed to be doing analysis on this story. Anyway, uh, maybe one of you can craft a bit for me. I do want to say, had I had access to these songs that uh, are co- the covers that Pinsker provides, I think I would have listened to the Steel Ice Band version for sure, along with the Grateful Dead, uh, the Decemberists, and Jack White's version. 
Uh, and now that everyone knows something about my music tastes, I wonder what your top selections would have been, Glenn. Right. The exact opposite of, of, of yours. Uh, Kingston, <laughs> King, Kingston Trio first for me. Then I was interested in Metallica and then Jack White and then not at all interested in the others. That's uh, so Jack White yeah, is no, where we no need, Joan Baez for us, uh, <laughs> sadly. Sorry. Sorry to all of our Joan Baez fans out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But no, I really wanted this song to exist. And I think this is a great selection of musical artists, you know, a cross selection of the 20th century. Oh, we left Dolly Parton off the list. I, I actually would have checked out Dolly Parton before Jack White, I guess, uh, as well. Uh, but yeah, great selection of musical acts from the you know 20th century, really second half of the 20th century, I suppose, uh, recorded music era. Uh, perfect. I imagine just coming up with that on its own was probably pretty fun. And I can even feel like some of that maybe grew out of uh, in-jokes with you know friends and, and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, for, somehow the story just seems perfectly uh, designed for millennial liberal arts majors, maybe Gen Xers as well. I don't know, I don't know much about Sarah Pinsker, but um, I don't know. Based on this selection, she feels like a millennial to me. Anyway, let's return to the text itself. I really love how Pinsker is able to take, you know, what could be dialogue at a round table at a folk song convention or something, uh, by which I mean the group dynamics of people you might find at a con, and put it in a message board format that rings true both to message board experiences on niche topics. I mean, you can go to the Gene Wolfe Reddit page or, or Earthnet if you'd like to see this in action. Uh, I don't know, maybe listen to our other shows as well. But, you know, there's there's just these sorts of people that become interested in niche topics, the earnest people involved in the discussion. There's jokers, there's autodidacts, there's archivists, and just every type of person uh, that really gets into something niche is on display here. And it's great how she's able to examine this old folk song through all these angles in, in the footnote or comment portions of the story. And you know, then the forum users are going to parse out definitions of particular words or versions of songs. They'll examine ambiguities and so on. And it's just all great stuff. Uh, basically what we do on, on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And this story even invites us to consider the ambiguity of the Oaken Heart itself without ever saying explicitly that both the tree and Sweet William now can be considered to have Oaken Hearts uh, or the heart of the, the oak tree is a human heart and William's heart is an uh, oak sapling. And, you know, also we're then not surprised that someone along the way in history changed the lyrics to broken hearts do gather to open up the audience. And I guess what I'm saying here is there's just a lot of great work being done here in the explication of the song itself. Uh, and yes, also the story found in the song is a great little fall ballad as well. There's a kind of melancholy sense in general uh, to the death that comes with fall and uh, the new life that results from that. And it's totally appropriate to pair these up with a relationship gone south due to maybe monstrous behavior on one or both people's fault. And then when you know, you're reading the comment section, along with these lyrics, um, we see all these great petty squabbles and beefing going on. So just just a masterpiece here of the song and the structure of the story that I'm kind of weaving into my commentary here as as we move on to these other parts of the story that we're about to get into. 
Yeah, I just want to reiterate as well that the the song itself, which is only a you know a third of what the story is doing, is an absolute masterpiece. And it, you know, we were just joking around about uh, which fake cover versions of this we would like to hear. But I really would like to hear this, right? So I, I hope that someone will do this at some point. In fact, it's I think entirely conceivable that by the point this episode is actually airing, someone will have done this. So I hope that listeners will uh, uh, point that out to us uh, when this uh, whenever this shows up on the internet. And uh, speaking of the internet, even though I think much of our conversation about this story is eventually going to uh, involve me talking about how much I simply do not internet, uh, I have, while you were talking, actually used the internet to discover which generation Sarah Pinsker is a member of. And uh, she is uh, she is one of mine. She is a, a solid Gen Xer, <laughs> which is what I would have guessed from the musical entries. But I guess that's what literature is. It is a mirror in which we see our own reflections. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I'm glad you looked that up. All right. So that is the song. We certainly will return to that. But there is, as we have said, a lot more to this story. And what Pinsker does next is to bring a scholar into this, a scholar who is interested in figuring out, well, maybe more broadly, figuring out what is up with this song, but then specifically in figuring out which English village appears in the song. This scholar's name is Mark Rydell, and he is an English professor at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. 20 years ago, Rydell published a handful of articles about this song. He then also had a website where he wrote informally about his research interests. And we, the readers, are given some excerpts from his work, but also some paraphrases of it from people who have read it, including a, a current undergrad at Penn who has gotten really interested in all of this. And Pinsker shows us a lot of Rydell's work here, uh, the dead ends, the red herrings, all of which I thought was really spectacular. But I am just going to give listeners the result, which is that he takes an alternate tradition about the first verse to ascertain that William was the son of someone named Robert Butcher. Rydell then locates a Robert Butcher who had a son named William who was hanged, uh, you know, locates him in the historical record. And that record comes from an essay of Robert Butcher's that was published in 1770. It's really a, a letter to the editor of a newspaper. And this letter is a defense of hanging. Uh, hanging was a topic of public debate at this time. You know, should we be hanging people? Should we stop hanging people? This is uh, you know, really the first step or second step maybe in uh, prison reform movement or, or judicial punishment reform movement in England. But strangely, this letter's defense does not use the word crime. And in fact, what Robert Butcher writes is that, and here I'm quoting, he writes, there are circumstances for which, tragically, Hanging is the only proportionate response. What's more, this Robert Butcher lived in a village named Gaul. Uh, that's G-A-L-L. So Rydell went off to visit Gaul to see if any of the geographic features of the village matched the song, and really just to see what records he might be able to find in the village, right, at the local museum and some other places around the village. But then Rydell disappeared, and no one ever heard from him again. Also. No one found a body, and that was 20 years ago. 
Right. Uh, it's it's fantastic, you know, way to draw us into a deeper mystery about what's going on behind the scenes, the truth behind this song where Oaken Hearts do gather. And I love the way that uh, fo- forum users use Rydell's work or are interested in Rydell's work. And, and it seems, again, to ring so true to life. They like Rydell not only because he's a serious business scholar and has written, you know, book or articles about this song, but because his interest goes beyond scholarship into fandom. You know, he's kept a passion project blog up and running, uh, and a few people have tried to keep up with that, you know, at least until Rydell went missing. They've also wondered where he went to, and uh, it's a great mystery. You know, of course, Glenn, you and I know the struggles well of, of you know, hosting a passion project online and trying to, to, to maintain that and keep it up. And I do hope that if Clay Temple Media suddenly disappears someday and and we you know fall off the radar of the internet uh that we get a pretty cool found footage horror film movie about that <laughs> or at least a, a story about it as good as as this one is yeah the, the the reality of course will just be that uh we we have succumb to our own children's needs, I think is uh, <laughs> what, uh, what that would be. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think this has all of the the hallmarks of you know something that we've all experienced with the internet, which is something that we're really invested in on the internet suddenly disappearing with no explanation as to, to why. And then wanting to poke around, wanting to look into it, even if we know that probably it's not our business to to do so. I think we have all done something like that at some point. And that's really part of the you know element of this of this story. One thing I want to just emphasize again here, and I think we just have to reiterate this over and over again, is that we are not doing this story justice in that we are having to split it up in these different ways. And so I have now narrated or recapped the song and have now also recapped this one element of the investigative part of the story. But I just want to emphasize again, reiterate that we are getting all of that information at the same time, that we start to learn about Rydell, we start to learn about his disappearance before we actually even have the full text of the song, because we're learning all of this as comments to the stanzas of the song as we get them. And so we're getting quite a bit of it out of order and disjunctured. And so the story, I think, as I have presented it, is very cool and very exciting. But what we're missing here is a sense of dread and then also the thrill of discovery that Pinsker has really made this story out of. You need to read this story, really, before listening to this episode. It's something we probably should have said at the top. Uh, This story is freely available online, I think. And so um, if you're like this seems cool. What are these guys gushing about so much? I don't get it from the recap. Pause the episode and go read the story and then come back and and join us for the rest of the tale and the discussion. Well, all right. We still have one element of Pinsker's story that we need to cover in the recap. And that is this undergrad from Penn. His name is Henry, though we never learn his last name. And Henry is super into Rydell's work, but he's also really interested in the mystery of Rydell's disappearance. I mean, the two things go hand in hand for Henry, I think. And this is where we get the uh, the found footage horror film, right? Because Henry is going to make a documentary about Rydell's disappearance. Naturally, this means he has to visit Gaul. And uh, hey, Gaul, it turns out, has an annual springtime bonfire festival that is all that is left of an earlier tradition where they used to chop down all the oak saplings every spring. 
And they don't do that part anymore. And now there are some new growth oak trees, but uh, don't worry about that right now. There is a young woman named Jenny who works at the local museum. Uh, Jenny describes the old ritual of chopping down the oak saplings as barbarous. Also, Jenny has some older sisters. But again, don't worry about that right now. What's more urgent is that the village lost all of its records in a fire that got out of control. So there are no records left of Robert Butcher, his son William, but also there is simply no record of Professor Rydell's visit 20 years ago. So it is still a mystery whether or not he even made it to the village. And then that is it. We do not ever hear from Henry again either. We are led to understand that it has been two years since his last post on this forum, and there is simply no trace of him anywhere else on the internet. And that is the end of the story, though there is, of course, still a ton more to this to talk about. There are some great details here in this, uh, within this element of the story about how Henry thinks something is leaching into the ground that are turning the leaves red once they've fallen. Um, so like the song is maybe missing some details about the reality of the situation. As you said, Glenn, Jenny's got these sisters that he keeps on talking about in his post. And since we learn very early on, it's one of the first things that draws us into the story uh, is a comment that tells us that Henry has gone missing. We are left with this sense of dread and this, this sense of discovery that, that you've also brought up. Um, I'll mention, too, before we take a quick pause for the cause here and then get into the discussion that Henry's handle is Henry Martin. And Henry Martin was an Anglican priest and missionary in the late 19th I'm sorry, the late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, his mission field was India and Persia. He was also a chaplain for the British East India Company. So maybe we'll consider if his name or anyone's name on this forum has any real uh, bearing on, on what's going on in the story when we come back from this ad break. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's consider first in this story the handles of our characters. Um, I'm not going to read them all off. I've decided against that because I just want everyone who's listening this, to this to read this story and buy this uh, story collection. Once again, it's called Lost Places, published by Small Beer Press. Um, but, you know, I mentioned that Henry Martin's name was, uh, his handle at least, is that uh, of an Anglican priest who was a, a chaplain for the British East India, India Company. I have no sense that Henry Martin is also the name of the the grad student who went on this expedition to Gaul. Um, so let me ask you this question, Glenn. Did the fact that these were handles in a message board, these characters that were that were seeing dialogue about this story, did that change your sense of who these characters were or could be? And what I mean is this, and it's really a two-part question because I can't escape a need to give you two-part questions. What's the effective difference between a handle and a name in a piece of literature? Maybe a little theory question that we can spitball about a little bit. But secondly, specifically to Oaken Hearts here, did any of these message board posters seem as though they were perhaps in league with or knew more about the monsters at the center of the story than they let on? Yeah, I think that that second question is a really interesting one that I will bite at first, which is that I, I don't think so. I really do think that everyone behind these handles really are just uh, people like us who are, you know, maybe in their basements or, you know, at any rate in their their homes or somewhere <laughs> in the world, uh, just being really 
big nerds about something on the internet, right? And you know, here they're they're typing about it rather than speaking into microphones about it. Uh, but yeah, I just got the sense that each of these people are you know fans of this in some way, with maybe the one question mark uh, around this uh, character, Barrow Boy, um, who never really seems to add anything of substance to the conversation and is uh, really just kind of needling other people. Um, Yeah, it it is, in fact, and in fact, the main object of such needling at some point even asks Barrow Boy, you know, what Barrow Boy is doing here, and we do not get a straight answer out of that. But I I don't suspect that Barrow Boy is actually, um, you know, some kind of ent, uh, (laughs) you know, with an internet (laughs) connection. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to I want to make it clear here when I'm saying monster, I'm using it in a in a technical sense uh, about how you know in in a kind of certain order of being in horror stories, you know, mankind, humanity is a little more than than beasts and a little less than angels, and monstrous characters or monsters themselves are always that kind of humanity who has a little bit more beast in their nature than humanity. And I don't really think that, um, I don't really think that these tree people are villains, though they certainly predate upon humanity. Uh, it's, it's just, they're a different type of species. Perhaps we can take that up a little bit, you know, regarding whether or not, um, there are any, people in league with monsters or the monsters themselves in the stories. My guesses would have been Bonnie Lass 67 and, and also Barrow Boy as well. I don't think it's essential to the story, but I think what I'm driving at with the question that is the, at this is um, we don't know who any of these people are. We have their, their mask uh, more than their kind of uh, authentic self in some way, which the mask can be a display of authenticity. And so I guess that's what I mean, is the use of handles or avatars online are as revealing as they are concealing, um, like you might go to a carnival and uh, or, or a kind of masked ball and have a liaison with, with someone who is outside of your station. You know, all the sorts of things that masks can do in literature, the same thing can be done with a handle on the internet. And I wonder, Glenn, the degree to which maybe to specify the first part of my question, Pinsker is playing with this kind of online masking for the sake of this story. Yeah, though, uh, you know, I think that we can have some fun looking at these handles and thinking about who these people are based also, of course, on you know, you know thinking about what it is that they're they're writing. I, I was surprised that you thought that you know Bonnie Lass sixty seven might have some kind of uh, special supernatural insight or insight to the actual reality of the the supernatural stuff being described in the story, which is something you and I have not really established yet. We will have to take that up, um, but we'll we'll do this. We'll finish this <laughs> line of thinking first. But uh, Bonnie Lass sixty seven, you know, if we can take this name as you know proof of anything, which we cannot, of course, right? But um, presumably sixty seven is a year of birth. Uh, and you know Bonnie Lass, and we're going to a Scottish woman, or perhaps a woman of Scottish descent, for whom that identity matters in some way. Uh, Bonnie Lass, sixty-seven, has a lot of technical knowledge about 
this song. She, you know, knows the catalog numbers. She knows all sorts of of variants about it. She clearly has print resources at her disposal that other people in this conversation do not. And so my supposition here was that Bonnie Last 67 is probably a recently retired or close to retiring librarian uh, who always wished that she had actually gone to grad school to become an English professor, but didn't get that opportunity for, you know, the reasons that people don't get those opportunities. Um, and and you know regrets that and this is what she is doing with her time now is following using the internet right to follow her passion which is to talk to other people about um, child ballads. It works both ways. I think if you d- dig into some of the comments, you can read them as uh, foreshadowing. She's the one who brings up and highlights the role that the sisters play in the song and so on. And that becomes a sort of chilling revelation as we learn about what's going on with Henry Martin. Um, but that. It's just remarkable, I guess, to me, the degree to which Pinsker is playing with classic technique like foreshadowing um, and then the way that that can have different meanings based on what we know of the Internet and the knowledge we're bringing to the table. And uh, I guess that's what I really want to highlight with this question, too, is just the technical mastery and the way that Pinsker is able to play with our own presuppositions in order to make this story really, really sing. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, there are some really great names here. I mean, Holy Grail, you, you've you mentioned, but it's, you know, Grail is spelled G-R-E-I-L. Um, and we also then have uh, Dynamum, which might be then, you know, a British person uh, being a an awesome mom might be what that name means, but right. it could mean something yeah. else, you know, and, and, you know, this is the person who actually makes the temple of doom joke and, uh, and, and, and a few other things as well. Uh, and then we have Reanonymous, right? So Rhiannon named Rhiannon, and then, you know, anonymous, a little, little play, right? Some puns there. This is the thing people love to use the internet for, um, at least people of, you know, a certain age love to use internet handles for, uh, and yeah, these are great. And you really get a sense here in reading all of these comments of a kind of relationship here, right? Among these people, I mean, Barrow Boy is always needling Dynamum, but uh, most people seem to come to Dynamum's defense. Uh, you know, Bonnie Lass seems to be, or Bonnie Lass 67, let's give the whole name here, you know, seems to be the kind of grown up in the room. Um, yeah, different interest, different expertise. We have, you know, Henry Martin, this undergrad, this really enthusiastic undergrad who, you know, kind of seems like he's, you know, he's going to go out and be, you know, do the thing that Bonnie last 67 wishes that she had been able to do and so on. Um, you know, so I have a sense of kind of generations there as well, you know, different ages, all sorts of just different demographic niches, I guess, or demographic uh, markers uh, represented here. Um, and this to me felt a lot like something that we I don't know, maybe we still see this, I just don't internet anymore. But, um, you know, with that we saw 10, 15 years ago, uh, where we saw lots of stories about communities that exist on the internet, actually existing in real life in some way. And here, I'm thinking of, 
the guild that Felicia Day show right. about people who yeah. played an MMO, you know, on on online, um, you know, so a, a community that exists around doing something together on the internet, but in fact end up existing in you know together in real life and us following their dramas. I think there was something similar about like a fantasy football group. There was a lot of this ten or fifteen years ago when this kind of activity was new. This feels. Maybe not like it's exactly like that, but like you could actually spin this off into such a thing. And it's a big part of the story, actually, is the dynamic among these uh, Reddit commenters. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to do a sequel to this story, it would be these people meeting in an English pub outside of Gaul, uh, deciding to look into the death of Henry Martin. And that's uh, that's a sequel this story doesn't need, but would be a fun, I think, exercise. <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly right. That, that would make the story worse. But when this gets a a role playing game scenario treatment, that's that's how this works. That's who you are as the player characters. You have to be these people. And yeah, it's then it's then it's the the Dunwich horror. It's okay. We now we've we we know we have figured out what's going on, and now we have to stop it. And so each of us with our own particular you know set of skills are here to to give this a shot. But you know only two of us are going to make it out with our sanity intact, right? And uh, I don't want to read that short story or that novel, but I would play that, that RPG scenario for sure. Yeah. It would, it would diminish what, what Pinsker's done here. But I think if you had to uh, do it, that's, that's the route I would take. Um, yeah. This, you mentioned the conflict between Dynamum and Barrow Boy. And one thing we know about compelling storytelling is that it relies upon conflict. And that's one of the things that Pinsker is able to do here is create the conflict of this character and show that, yes, we all see that Dynamum has this sort of rough, maybe uninformal insight into the story of, uh, of the, the song where Oak and Hearts do gather that makes her target for somebody who thinks they're maybe more polished or more educated, but she's often vindicated as well. Uh, and so you get this character arc through reading the story, the sense of satisfaction about what's going on with her. Um, and it's just great. I think it's just great. And that's all I want to say here. That's all I'll, that's the, every point I want to make here about this story is how great it is on a technical level, on a conceptual level, um, and on a, uh, um, on a craft level, more broadly speaking, but on a, on a readership level as well. And I think on a technical level, the, the, or maybe a more abstract level before we dive into the specifics of the story a little bit, um, one of the topics that the story engages with, I think, that we've been mentioning is this overlap between scholarship, properly speaking, and fandom. And so, Glenn, I wonder, you know, since you are the, the resident scholar here, how you felt this story characterized the difference between um, the practices of a devoted fan and a scholar uh, who are both engaged and pulled into the same endeavor. Right. I mean, that is really the angle for me into this story. I love weird fiction principally because I love reading stories in which, uh, you know, tweed wearing academics get to be the heroes or at least, you know, the victims of their own <laughs> curiosity uh, in a really cool and exciting and interesting way. Right. And so this is that type of story. I mean, this actually, I, I will invoke the Dunwich Horror again here. I think this shares a lot of DNA with the Dunwich Horror where we've got uh, scholars investigating something happening in a rural setting. And 
you know, discovering that actually it's even, you know, the, 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 the truth that the reality is actually even more bizarre and horrifying than, you know, one could have imagined, right? In this case, it really is a scholar, uh, Professor Rydell, who I think really just is interested in this in an intellectual way. Like there's no sense, you know, that he has some kind of belief in the literalness of this song, right? But he's curious about what could be the genesis of a song like this? I mean, so a lot of the child ballads have some kind of supernatural element to them, but not like this, right? And so it's a really fascinating, you know, entry into the catalog and wanting to do more about that, I think is perfect. Uh, and yeah, in terms of thinking about then how this functions, right? I think something that's really fascinating about this is that the actual scholar in the story, the person who locates the village which is that's that's the key right to this you know the actual plot of the story is the locating of the village this person uh never appears on screen so to speak right that this is all backstory that this is something that happened 20 years ago that the real i don't know sandwich of the story or i don't i guess the the slices of bread of the sandwich of the story are the text of the song itself and then the comments on the forum and then in between is Whatever it is that happened to Professor Rydell, which is simply not narrated to us directly at all. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, being given two slices of bread, told what it would be like if something really great were in between them, and then told to eat it, you know, and enjoy it. It's kind of what, but, but yet somehow actually completely works. It's like, wow, that, that, that was a great Reuben. There was nothing in it that made it a Reuben, but nonetheless, it was a fantastic Reuben, perhaps the best I've ever had. That's the same thing that's happening here. Um, and it's just absolutely fantastic. It's marvelous how Pinsker is able to do that. Uh, but she follows this up with the fact that we do have two active members of this forum community who themselves are doing scholarly things. And that's Henry, but then also Bonnie Lass 67, right? Who are coming at this uh, from different angles. Bonnie Lass 67 has the books in front of her uh, and, and has a kind of trained expertise in the song itself. Whereas Henry is really, uh, you know, kind of the, the sleuth here, right? And in fact, someone even calls him the, you know, the field the field worker, the field investigator here, that he's out, you know, tracing Rydell's steps. That's, you know, that's what he's up to. That's what he's doing. And, you know, the three of them then together, Bonnie Last 67, Henry, and then Professor Rydell, uh, make for a really interesting team of scholars working, you know, on uh, similar uh, adjacent problems without ever having actually met each other or communicated in, in real time in any way. It's very cool. It's super cool, and and kind of getting back to the to the meat of the question I asked, uh, I, you know, one of the things that Pinsker does in differentiating between scholarship and fandom is showing us that Rydell himself has to split these sort of personas, right? Because he has the published stuff, which has to pass peer review, which has to follow certain um, formatting criteria with footnotes and bibliography and all that sort of stuff and and is meant to speak authoritatively on the subject that he is writing about to inform other people's work in the community of scholarship and so on to inform the public as well to act as an expert and authority and then his blog is this thing where he can speculate he can let his hair down take his I don't know take his tweed jacket off and and 
and and loosen his top button on his shirt, so to speak, and and be a little bit more relaxed about the way he's engaging and having these different personas in engaging with the same material is something um, that Pinsker captures really well here that I think is is maybe. Um, something that might be fading from our culture and understanding that uh, people can have these kind of multiple professional and private personas and still engage with the, uh, a topic richly that they are interested in. Yeah. So I, I had really lost track of what your question actually was there because I was just geeking out about how awesome Sarah Binsker had done in, 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 you know, catering to my specific interest here. But no, you're absolutely right that that is a, a fundamental element of this story is a reader's engagement with a text that they love and making inferences about that. And then the other activity of doing scholarship about that text. And these, these just are not the same thing. And, you know, uh, learning that they're not the same thing, uh, learning that one of them is a career and one of them is a hobby is, is actually something that, you know, one does in, in, college as an undergrad or does in, in, in grad school as well. And, you know, seeing if doing the scholarship is actually something that you, you know, you really want to do with this passion or if, if, you know, your passion for this really lies in some other realm. And then there are other activities that you can do. And frankly, that's what you and I are doing here. I mean, this is basically, <laughs> you know, the same type of activity, uh, but something else that differentiates or that sets Rydell aside from you know, fandom's engagement here is that he has training, he has expertise, and he has access, right? And so the move that he makes, the scholarly move that he makes here to get into this story in a very real way, to get into the story of the ballad in a very real way, is to locate the village, right? And that requires him having access to or knowing how to get access to records of hangings from early modern England. And that is not an easy thing to do, especially if he was doing this, uh, you know, circa, I guess, 2001, you know, you know, it was 2000, maybe even 1999 might've been when he was doing this. So this would be before the digitization of databases, maybe even the construction of databases like this. So just thinking about the work that he had to do, uh, you know, behind the scenes that never really shows up in an article because he never gets to write the article that he mentions on his blog, he talks about, writes about on his blog a little bit, but that we only get mediated through these comments on Lyricsplainer, the forum, um, is to have really hit the books, to really have gone through and looked through records of of hangings, uh, records about hangings is actually ultimately what he ends up finding. So at some point, Rydell just went through 18th century London newspapers to I you know read uh, opinion pieces, I guess, letters to the editor about hanging. And uh, that's a lot of work. He did a lot of work behind the scenes in order to to get this one piece of information that was able then to lead him to this village. I don't know if it was that much work, Len. I've seen a lot of research movies, and it's usually just a <laughs> microfiche montage that we're dealing with here. Uh, yeah. About two and a half minutes, maybe, with a, with a nice, uh, intense music going on in the background. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I wonder how he actually was able to do this. I mean, he would have had to physically go to the British Library in London to do this, I think, at the time. So then when does he get to do that, right? Because he's got his teaching obligations in Philly at, at, at Penn. And uh, so he either did this over the summer 
uh, or actually had sabbatical to do this. But then, of course, we also know that he goes to Gaul. So again, either that's over a summer or he's got sabbatical. Penn, we should say, is an Ivy League university. Uh, depending on what stage of career he was at, you know, this is someone who can expect to get sabbatical every three to five years, which is, you know, very different from many other institutions. So uh, might have been on sabbatical for this, might have been doing this over the summer. But, you know, it's conceivable that this was actually years of work. You know, it was a summer of research, possibly another summer of research. And then the following summer, uh, after an entire academic year of knowing about Gaul, uh, then he's finally able to go to Gaul the following summer. So there's a real, real, real slow pace uh, to the way this work <laughs> functions in, in the real world. That's magnificent. And, and Pinsker seems to really just have a handle on all of that. And in the way that there's a reality effect here, and I think you're speaking to that really, really beautifully. Uh, I guess I want to move into the specific story of the story a little bit. I don't have too many questions here, um, we're, but we are definitely meant to know that Rydell and, and Henry Martin are killed, right? We have that same understanding at the end of the story that they are they are now uh, either oaken hearts themselves or their hearts are are in oak trees. Yeah, I think we need to back up a little bit and, and just explicate what you and I have taken as implicit in the text, which is definitely implicit in the text. But you and I have read this with our eyeballs. Most of our listeners are just hearing us talk about this story in a very bizarre way. So let's just, you know, really kind of answer some foundational questions here and just say that, uh, yeah, we think that this song is about some kind of tree people who live in the forests in at least around this village of Gaul, but presumably in all of Britain. Uh, but they have, you know, been the victims of encroaching modernity, right? Expanding human population, the chopping down of trees for all sorts of activities, uh, you know, industrial activities, uh, but also to make space for people and so on. And so there are not going to be very many places left on the island where these tree people can live, but Gaul seems to be, uh, you know, a place where maybe they are continuing to be, uh, continuing to exist. But it seems also right, like they reproduce with humans in some way. And that, in fact, it might be, uh, you know, that there are something like dryads, right? Like tree spirits uh, who mate with humans. They, in fact, have to reproduce with humans in some way. Uh, and that, yeah, this is the story of Ellen and William, that Ellen has kind of picked out William uh, to be her mate. And I think it's clear that Ellen has a human form that, you know, like w William has not fallen in love with an oak tree, um, or at least he doesn't know he's fallen in love with an oak tree, that she has some kind of human form, right? I mean, I, I'm taking that as kind of a given. Are you are you on board with that reading of the text? A hundred percent, yes. That there there is, yeah, some kind of other species of human-like life living in these in these woods, and we say woods here because this text does distinguish between woods and a forest, uh, which is which is really cool. Um, and that they live there, and and yeah, they're reproducing. I guess is how you put it. I I don't know if I really thought of it as that way. But yeah, that tree in the heart that grows out of the grave must be kind of a new one of their species. Um, and that there's different signs that the village has learned to look out for that these tree people might need to reproduce and that there's dangers, but there's rituals to keep them away as well. And all of that is kind of baked into the the story in the ballad and the comment section as well. Um, 
and that now they're taking uh, people from outside the village in order to survive visitors to Gaul, perhaps. And this is where I get this is a classic full car move. We see this at the end of uh, of the Wicker Man of at the end of Nicolas Cage's The Wicker Man, which is what I mentioned. I haven't seen the original. I know uh, scold me online, but um, yeah, the the end of that Nick Cage one shows that, yeah, this is something intentional. This village, they need to bring in fresh blood to repopulate uh, or do their ritual properly and so on. But it's also a means of, of surviving, also a means of getting caught if people keep coming to investigate and keep disappearing. So yeah, there's a lot going on here that is pulling on these full car traditions that uh, just, just work, work very, very well in this story. Yeah, people can scold you for not having seen the real Wicker Man, but they also could commission you to do an episode of your uh, film show <laughs> on, that's right. on, yes. on, on fact, either version of the Wicker Man, uh, which yeah. I would I would love to hear. <laughs> but yeah, let's uh, let's talk actually about Henry next because this is a story that we get narrated much more, or you know, uh, we get more of the beats of Henry's story. I guess to, to make a complete sentence out of some jumble of words there. Um, yeah, so we get much more about Henry's story, and I think what is also implicit in the text is that Jenny, who works at the museum, runs the museum in Gaul, uh, Jenny's a tree person, and uh, so are her sisters. And Henry is the new William. Henry and Jenny you know, have fallen in love. And uh, the reason Henry has stopped posting is that he now is also a tree person or or has died in order to bring forth another tree person. It's unclear exactly how this works and, uh, uh, you know, if the, the man can survive this or not. But um, that is what has happened to Henry. I think that we can say that that's, you know, definitely something Pinsker wants us to infer from the story. But I think it's a little grayer about what's happened to Rydell, right? Did he make it to the village or not? And did this happen to him? Um, I think the answer is yes. But, um, you know, it's possible something else happened to him. Yeah, I think Rydell is 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 dead at the hands of of the tree people. And again, I'm I'm hesitant to call them villains here. Um, I'm I'm more comfortable with them being you know just other than us. And they have their own drives and desires. It's clear that they feel love. And I like the way that Pinsker gives us these human motivations and says this is just you know like it's clear that Ellen does love William that she is has some grief over this. Um, there's an element to the kind of otherworldly nature of this story that reminds me of uh, Christina Rossetti's incredible poem, uh, The Goblin Market, which I really recommend reading as well as informing kind of the the mental space of these English ballads and so on, um, the sense of, of fairies or dryads or whatever we're calling them that are a danger, but also kind of of their own ilk and... Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Glenn, I have I have one more question for you here at the end. Um, there's a little bit of a moral to this story about following folk traditions or village traditions to keep the superstitious monsters at bay. And this one is all about cutting down oak trees every season um, to keep new tree people from stealing your young. But We've recently just gotten some terrible news about a famous oak tree in England along Hadrian's Wall that was stricken down by a careless child. And and one, I hope I'm not springing on this, this news on you now, but did learning about this affect your reading of the story? Did it 
did it give you pause uh, when you went back to reread this story? <laughs> it, it did not. I did see that news item, though, and was pretty heartbroken by that. I, I have uh, hiked the length of Hadrian's Wall. This was actually part of my uh, uh, grad school research. It was kind of a blending of my uh, my hobby and also grad school research, uh, you know, about the late Roman army. And uh, so I have seen this tree. And so I, I it was a magnificent, beautiful tree. I was pretty heartbroken to see that this had happened. But uh, you're right. If we think about it in these terms, then what we know is that uh, uh, the environmentalist movement of the 1970s, which is responsible for uh, the curtailing of this uh, the springtime ritual, they're the actual villains of this story. That uh, um, we need to cut, <laughs> cut down all the trees, the whole planet, in order to keep us to keep us safe, because the trees are are definitely out to get us. Um, so yeah, this was actually um, uh, this was this was actually some kind of uh, monster hunter who did this, I guess. That's right. Yeah, I, I'll tell you. Reading reading this about this story this week, I did feel a rational anger towards this child's behavior as teenager, whatever. Um, just the the careless and reckless behavior, but. Having read this story, I, I did experience some cognitive dissonance <laughs> here and there. But thinking just about the spirit of your your comment here, your your thrust here, Brandon, about you know the folk horrorness of this, right? Is of course that. Uh, you disobey folk wisdom at your own peril, or you ignore folk wisdom at your own peril. And of course, this is the exact plot of every M.R. James story that we've ever read as well, right? And this is at the core of, of folk horror, is that the folk, the people, they know. They know about this land in ways that us you know, modern people, right? We don't know. We're so distanced. We're detached from the natural world that we don't know the dangers of the natural world. Uh, but not even just the natural world, just the, the, you know, that our engagement with the world around us is so obscured by our own built environments and our own obsession with our human society that uh, we simply don't know what is lurking out there. But the folk wisdom always knows, right? And this is a great take on that, right? There, I think there are several ways in which Pinsker here is is taking some really tried and true literary endeavors, I guess I'll say, um, and doing new things with them, right? The folk horror tradition is definitely one of them. Uh, but a term that we didn't use at all when we were talking about the internet comments uh, portion of the story is the epistolary novel, right? Th this is an updated version of an epistolary novel. It's just, you know, no one actually sends epistles anymore. We use, we don't even send emails anymore, right? We just, uh, we, we, we just, make comments on discussion forums now, right? And so Pinsker has taken that and said, yeah, but I, we, you know, we can still use this. Uh, we can still tell stories about people communicating with each other over distances here and tell a great horror story about it, right? And of course, the greatest epistolary horror novel is uh, what also is just perhaps the greatest horror novel. That's Dracula. Uh, though Pinsker is giving it a, a run for its money here, for sure. She's done something really special here. And I, and I think that our listeners can tell, we just keep on referencing everything that comes to mind to us uh, that it, as a way of explaining and talking about this story. And that's what makes this story so singular, so genius, is that it seems to reference everything that's come before it without really touching them and really standing alone on its own. I think that's what people mean when they say something is like uh, sweet generous or something like that, that, that has a singular uh, genius or of its own accord is that it seems to be about everything 
as well as being only about itself at the same time. And this story is an example of that. And what a treat it was for us to read this this week. I hope everybody's been convinced that they need to read this story to buy this collection, to support uh, Pinsker as a writer, to support Small Beer Press as a publisher. And uh, I think we, we can go out on that note. So that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. And uh, I will say in closing here that although this is only the second episode of the year, second story we've read, I can't imagine a story topping this uh, this year. I think where Open Hearts Do Gather is going to be uh, showing up in the year in review show for sure. And I'm really already excited about revisiting this story in a year's time or nearly a year's time. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. That includes Brandon's new film show called The Clay Temple Film Show and uh, commissions for that. Yeah, that's a thing that we can be doing here to uh, get Brandon to watch and uh, talk about some of these movies that we've mentioned and other things as well. Next time here, we're going to be back with the first installment in our series on weird fiction role-playing games. And we're going to be starting out with Vampire the Mask. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.